Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, October the 2nd, 2012, and this is episode 900 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, 990, I'm sorry, 900, it's like we just flew back in time there. 990 of the Survival Podcast, 10 away from episode 1000. I got a few more submissions in on that. Uh, the, the, the door is officially closed, sort of, uh, on the calls. On the pictures, we're done. I, I have to start working on the video today. I'm done with the, the, the pictures. I have probably a thousand pictures to go through to maybe fit a hundred into the video. So that's done. I will take calls, sort of. If you keep calling into the number for episode 1000, uh, 866-691-5353, uh, if you get it in before I finish it, I'll throw it in to the, the mix because it's pretty easy to do. But pictures are done, and I'm going to have to like draw the line at like probably today on the calls. I just have to say at that point I'm probably going to close the number off uh, because I just have too much work to do to get ready for this big event uh, at this point. Uh, so I just wanted to bring that up. So what are we going to talk about today? I have Glenn Tate, author of two, 299 Days Returning. We're going to talk about the initial reception to the first two books, a sneak peek at what's coming with uh, editions three and four, and an incredible contest. How would you like to have a signed set, first edition, of episode uh, edition one and two of 299 Days, autographed by Glenn and me? So I'm featured in the book, the show's featured in the book, my blurb's on the front of the first book, so that's where I come in. So you'll get a, a book that'll have my autograph, Glenn's autograph, and it'll be numbered 1 of 20, 2 of 20, 3 of 20, 4 of 20. Get it? There'll only be 20 sets ever done like this. Tune in closely today as I bring Glenn on and we'll tell you exactly how you uh, how you enter to win a set of those books. And since there's 20 sets, that's great because there's not a lot of them because it makes it kind of rare. And the other side of it is, since there's 20 of them, you got a pretty good shot at winning if you give it a shot, and uh, you'll get more on that contest when I bring Glenn on. Before I do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. And what are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Berkey water filtration systems, among other really good stuff for your preps. Now, why get a Berkey from Jeff the Berkey guy? I mean, you can get a Berkey just about any. If you go to a gun show today, somebody's probably selling Berkeys there. Well, you want the best price? Go to Jeff. You want the best service? Go to Jeff. You want the best service after the sale? Go to Jeff. You want somebody that'll take care of you? Go to Jeff. You want somebody that's going to take care of you if the mail screws up? Go to Jeff. You want somebody that's taking care of this audience? for three and a half years and has absolutely zero issues that are unresolved and zero unhappy customers with this audience, one of the most demanding groups of people in the world, go to Jeff. You want to roll the dice? Go to somebody else. The Berkey is the system. We all know that. The question is, who are you going to get your Berkey from? And i got to say, why wouldn't you get it from the Berkey guy? Who else are you going to go to? The non-Berkey guy that has Berkeys? Just saying. Next up today, shelfreliance.com, like shelf, a thing you put stuff on, not you yourself that you put, uh, you know, that you take care of, but a shelf, right? Shelfreliance.com. Why the name? Well, they have these really cool shelving systems that allow you to eat what you store and store what you eat on a constant rotational uh, basis. Whether you want small ones, like the pantry and cupboard that would fit in your pantry or your cupboard, or a great big one like the Harvest 72 that can hold like a half a ton of food. 
Either way, you got great systems that allow for this automatic rotation of food, fully customizable to whatever size cans you want. You want a great big rack of all number 10 cans for your long-term storage? They got it. You want a rack that allows you to store things down to the size of those little tomato paste cans and the cans that tuna fish come in and, and great big cans as well? They got that. Whatever you're looking for, if you can't figure out how to configure it yourself on the website, call them up. They'll take care of you. And they have the Thrive brand of long-term storage food. Uh, really great stuff. I was having a craving two days ago for something I knew I shouldn't eat. Like I wanted junk food. Right? I wanted something that was really, really like sweet and good and yeah, right? And I didn't have any in the house in the regular rotation because, well, we don't eat that anymore. But part of our long-term preps is some comfort foods. And I had a great big number 10 can of brownie mix from Thrive. And I thought, you know, I've never actually tried this. I tell people, eat what you store, store you eat. Let's go ahead and open it. You know, I'll, I'll end up giving most of them away or something, and I'll make one little pan, and we'll have a couple. They were freaking fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Check out not just, you know, the beans and rice stuff. Check out the stuff that's a little bit of comfort food. Thrive has an amazing selection of it. And those of you that make brownies for your kids, I imagine that buying number 10 cans of the mix and mixing it up and baking is probably less than buying stuff off the store shelves as well. All right, uh, next up, remember to check out tspcopper.com for some really innovative and cool copper medallions. Uh, again, tspcopper.com. Remember, prices are for rolls of 20, not a single coin. And uh, you'll find all kinds of cool stuff there. MSB members, you get 10% off. Make sure you get your 10% off. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you will get exclusive content available only to members. Support the show at about 20 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, paramedics, First responders, people like that, email me before you join. Put service discount in the subject line. I will send you a special discount to thank you for your service. With that wrapped up, it's my uh, pleasure now to welcome back to the show Mr. Glenn Tate, author of 299 Days. Hey, Glenn, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks, Jack, for having me back. Uh, it's terrific to be on again. Thank you very much. Hey, uh, I went out and I got a couple, uh, a couple new books recently. I'm sure you know which ones they were. <laughs> and uh, I've made it through the first book. I haven't made it through the second book, but it's uh, it's pretty awesome. I know a lot of people I've been hearing from basically bought them and, and went through them in like a weekend, and they're already salivating for the next sets. Uh, but what kind of feedback have you been getting from people on the books? Oh, it's it's been mind blowing. Uh, it's it's terrific. I get uh, a bunch of emails and a bunch of personal messages, both on the TSP forum and also on Facebook, uh, from people saying amazing things like. I I was prepping, but I kind of quit doing it. I got lazy. I got busy, and this book has jolted me back into reality. And now our family's prepping again. Quite a few people have said uh, they were thinking about prepping, and now they're doing it, and that's very satisfying to me. But the most satisfying thing um, is when people say, and they're usually male, they say, "Hey, my wife or girlfriend uh, was not was not down with this prepping thing. Thought I was a little weird." I gave her the book, she read it, and now she's saying we need to garden, we need to store some food, and we need to get some guns and do a bunch of other things. And so that is enormously satisfying. If I can help, you know, flip a spouse to, uh, to mention, uh, you know, one of the threads on the TSP forum about this. So that's been great. And then the book reviews, oh my goodness gracious on Amazon, uh, 37 of them so far for book one and 20 for book two. Um, almost all of them are five star and people I can tell have really read this book. You know, this isn't some spam bot that's generating these, of course. And, um, and that feedback has been absolutely amazing. And people, 
in the reviews, I can tell they understand what I'm what I'm getting at with uh, books one and two, and and that's it's like I'm communicating with them. It's like I had a conversation via these books, and that is enormously satisfying. So I I'm blown away. I thought the response would be pretty good because some of the people who read it in advance had some pretty good responses, but they were friends of mine, and maybe they were just being nice. But the the responses have been overwhelming. I'm I'm I, I've just realized that since I know you so well and we've been talking about this for so long that we didn't really, for the person that might be tuning in for the first time, explain you know the book series and, and the core of it. It's 299 days, and you want yep. to tell folks kind of just the, the summary concept of it for those that are maybe new. Yeah, it's about um, it's about a guy. It's me, by the way, <laughs> semi-autobiographical. It's actually largely autobiographical, and it's about this guy who grew up in a rural area and was a country boy and had country boy skills and then um, decided to go off and have a career, and a white-collar career, and lost all the country boy skills that he had and uh, gets kind of stuck in the suburban world of, of being a suburbanite and a career guy and everything like that and then realizes, oh, my goodness, this, this thing, this American economy, American political system, American social system – is is unsustainable. There are going to be some bad things that are going to come. And the thing that the main character realizes is that he used to be able to take care of himself back when he was growing up in a rural area, but now he can't. I mean, he's out of shape. He doesn't have any skills. So he says, I need to prep. And then it's the story of how he uh, goes about prepping. He starts at ground zero. I mean, starts from the very beginning with no skills and starts learning uh, what he needs to know and starts getting his mindset in in the right place that it needs to be. Well, along the way, he gets uh, resistance um, from his wife, who is is not a prepper and uh, grew up in a kind of upper income world and never had to worry about things like there not being food in the grocery store or nine one one not instantly responding, you know, when they get called. And so there's a lot of resistance and a lot of um, I don't know, uh, resistance is probably the best word. So then um, he he meets up with a group of guys that he shoots with called the team, um, who are all real people in real life, by the way, and they start building up their skills. They're all civilians. They're all normal guys, um, no Rambo stuff, no comic book stuff. And, um, and then he starts hanging out in a gun store and meeting some interesting people, um, all of whom help him. He gets a, a cabin um, out in in a rural place through kind of a miraculous set of events, which are true, by the way, in the book. Um, and, and then starts realizing, okay, I'm a man. Um, I need to take care of my family. That's, that's my job. And I'm going to do it. Even if, you know, my wife thinks I'm crazy, I'm doing this because I can see with my own eyes that bad things are coming. One of the reasons the character can see with his own eyes that bad things are coming is that much like my real life, um, the main character has a job uh, in government or around government that allows him to see what's going on and to see that a collapse is coming. And so he has, uh, I talk about a front row seat to corruption is how I describe it. And um, he realizes bad things are coming. So he, he preps, he gets friends together and they prep. Um, and that's pretty much book one. Book two, there's a, a big event and it's pretty clear that the collapse is on and uh, he goes out um to his, his cabin and and gets some people together. That's basically where book two ends. And so that's what it's about. The the description of the series, books three through ten, in a very, very short nutshell, are that uh, 
some good guys form up out at the cabin and a community forms up. Uh, they start taking care of themselves because the government pretty much doesn't exist. And uh, they do what they need to do. And uh, they end up um, doing some good things and making sure things get fixed. I'm trying to be very vague, which is kind of annoying. I apologize, but it's what I have to do. No, I mean, you're, you, you obviously you don't want to give away too much. And it, it, I think a lot of times people don't understand authors. It's not that like they're so worried that if I tell you what's going to happen, you're not going to go buy the book. It's that I don't want to ruin it for you. I put all of this time and effort into building up this suspenseful story, and I want you to experience it as a reader, not get a little piece of it on, on the side. Uh, so yeah. I understand completely. Yep, yep. But we have something special to announce here before we kind of get into, because what we're going to talk about today, folks, really is uh, Glenn's journey and a little bit of how it applies to the books, but just how it applies to life and, and what's going on. But I, I've talked to him, and what we're going to do is we're going to give away 20 sets. I keep saying copies when we're talking offline, but we're going to give away 20 sets of the first two books of 299 Days. And uh, Glenn was nice enough to feature the Survival Podcast, our forum, and myself in these books. Uh, so, and I actually wrote uh, a little blurb for him that's on the cover of the first book. So they're sitting on my floor right now waiting for me to autograph them. And I will then be sending that box of books over to uh, to Glenn, and uh, he will autograph them. And there will only be 20 of those, 20 sets like that ever. And uh, you can win one, and you can win one by going out and buying a set of the books, and then you need to send proof of that. And, and Glenn, we're going to let people that already bought a set do this, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you've already bought a set, just forward your receipt, uh, or if you have it, if you, I mean, just about anybody, you can't buy it in a store right now, I don't, I don't think. So anybody would have had to buy it online. So just forward your receipt to Glenn at his email, and we're going to run this contest, what, for 30 days? Yep. So for the next 30 days, and we'll put full details of what to do in the show notes today, uh, but it's uh, glentate123 at gmail.com, correct? That's right, and Glenn has one N in it. So glentate1N, N. No, so it's glentate with one N, 123 at gmail.com. Forward your receipts there, and uh, put a subject, um, uh, 299 days contest in the subject line, great. and... Uh, We'll just we'll just run that for 30 days. At the end of 30 days, we'll draw, and that's 20 sets, folks. So you have a good chance of winning there. So I, I really appreciate you, uh, you know, stepping up and doing that as a new author and making those available because I think this is going to be one of the biggest uh, home runs in the prepper, uh, you know, uh, fiction world. And uh, I think that'll make them uh, pretty desirable with both of our autographs on them. Yeah, and thank you so much, Jack, for, uh, and you were the one that came up with this idea. I wasn't even going to ask you, my goodness. You said, hey, let's autograph some books jointly, and I said, heck yeah, so this is going to be terrific, absolutely terrific. What a keepsake, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Now, you do still owe me a, a set that are autographed by you to me. Uh, That's right. <laughs> so That's you need, right. To the, you need to get those over to me, but otherwise, I'll, I, I have uh, procrastinated for a week. They are all laid out on the floor in sets in the other room in the office, and I will get that done today. And when Dorothy gets back on Monday, we'll get them shipped back to you. And then, folks, you guys have uh, 30 days now to go out, and you should be doing it anyway because it's a great set of books. And what you do, again, is you buy uh, a set, both the, the first and second book in the series, forward your receipt to Glenn uh, at his email address, and at the end of 30 days, all the people that have done that will be put into a spreadsheet or something, and we'll draw out 20 of them, and you guys will win um, limited edition autographed copies, first printing, uh, by myself and the author. Yeah, great. 
So cool. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll scale back to promotion now and let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you learned along the way as you were, because as you were writing this book, obviously when we get deeper into the story where the collapse has already happened, that's reaching out and extrapolating. But this, especially the first book with the huge amount of character development in there, this is all stuff you personally walked through. So one of the things you're walking through is you're watching this collapse, and I think you and I agree that like it's not a collapse that's coming. It's a collapse that's in progress. It's been going on for a long time. And have you kind of realized that the way these things fall apart is like slower than most people think? Exactly right. I went into this, um, I don't know, thinking that there would be some big, big thing. You'd turn on the news, and uh, it would say on one of those scrollers at the bottom, the United States is collapsing. There would be this you know big dramatic moment. It's not how it is, and my my job that allows me to observe how government works um, led me to believe this. I mean, when you look at the uh, the budget deficits in my state um, and how state government was running out of money, they were using accounting tricks, they were making things up, uh, they were increasingly doing things that were either illegal or quasi illegal to try to raise money. Um, you know, I, I could see how the thing was was falling apart. The other thing I could see as far as the slow process goes was how government agencies were slowly uh, losing control over people. I don't mean to exaggerate. It's not some big thing, but I mean, I could see that there were only so many of them and there were so many of us who were being taxed and regulated. And um, I could see that, that these agencies didn't have this iron hand over us that, you know, you would think if you don't think about it much and you don't see it from the inside. It was more fragile from the government standpoint than you might otherwise think. So I, I saw that going on. And then, of course, there were events going on in the world and, and all that that, you know, add to this. I put in the book about the United States being downgraded, its credit being downgraded a second time. I wrote that a year ago, and it actually happened, what, two weeks ago or something like that. And these are not hard predictions to make, by the way. I'm not Nostradamus by any means. So I, I watched this slow, this slow collapse going on. And um, number one, I'm, I'm glad that I was. it was slow because it gives everybody more time, right? It gives everybody more time to prep. But also, the slower it is, um, the, the, the more we can uh, find other people and we can talk about this and we can help other people get ready. So that's the slowness of the collapse. It's not, it's not the, the jippy-pop instant thing that a lot of people out there are thinking. And you've been right about this the whole time. That's, that's been spot on. You know, I, I think that there's it's like a two-edged sword with this slow collapse thing. On one hand, it gives people plenty of time to look and go, oh, crap, see what's happening. And then the other t thing it does is, it, it, for other people, though, is it like entrenches normalcy bias because, oh, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. And look, okay, well, that happened, but everything's still okay, uh, depending on where you are in the social strata anyway. Everything seems to be okay. But as we look around, we can kind of see America's future, and it, it really sucks. If you look at Europe right now, I mean, uh, Caledonia, Spain today was just came out with protest uh, favoring separatism, uh, basically breaking away from Spain. Uh, yeah. and, 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 you know, they've had video today on uh, Russia Today TV of uh, just uh, these, these, you know, jackbooted thugs right in the street clubbing the hell out of these people who are out there protesting. And you look at that and you go, it's hard for me to accept that other people can't accept that's coming in our direction that there's like this wave sweeping across the globe and it's just the, the nations that have done what we've done stupidly they've just done stupidly more and faster 
right? Yep. So, so we know that we're both headed to that place. And as hard as it is to accept that, it's harder for me to accept that anybody doesn't see it now. And most people still don't. Yeah. And, and here you have a couple weeks ago, uh, the, you know, a second downgrade of, of the credit of the United States. But what are all my friends? I call them my normal friends because they're not preppers. No offense to preppers, obviously, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the sheeple friend, I guess, sheeple friends, I guess you could call them. And they're all nice people and, you know, I You're like heard. Yeah, my herd. But, you know, <laughs> they're talking about the uh, NFL referee strike and a bunch of other things, which is kind of interesting. I'm a football fan. I know you're a Steelers fan. and as a I am. Fan, I'm very sorry that we can't agree on that. But oh. anyway, because you guys robbed us in the Super Bowl, but I don't want to get into it with Whatever. you. Whatever. Uh, speaking that's of bad losers, ref calls. That's what losers always say. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. No, but my, uh, my, my sheeple friends, they, they have no clue that there was a second credit downgrade. And if you told them about um, violence in Spain, they would kind of shrug because they're probably thinking that happens all the time. No, it doesn't happen all the time. Spain no. is a developed, sophisticated European country. It's a member of the EU. It's not Five years ago, if you were thinking, where should I go on vacation, the south of Spain along the coast would have been a paradise to go to. And if you wanted a place with, like, you know it's not sustainable, but where the lifestyle was good, it was all over the country. Mm-hmm. And it's not oh, and so there much were, today. <laughs> there were there were tourists coming to the Seattle area from Europe, and one of the reasons there was an influx a few years ago, I seem to remember, was the, uh, the euro, the EU currency, was so valuable and so strong that they could come here and get good deals. Boy, that it isn't was us going to Mexico, but they were coming to America. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah, I, absolutely. And, and that's what I think people like. It's so easy to say, well, that's Spain, that's Greece, that's Italy. It's like, no, that's... That is the developed world. That Those are NATO allies. These are nations that are doing the exact same thing. They're using the same type of banking system. They're doing the same types of social programming. Uh, they, they've just done it faster, and therefore they've reached the end quicker, and they don't have the kind of the, uh, the, the, uh, the safeguard that we do right now of being the world's reserve currency. We can get away with crap. Nobody else can. But I just don't think we can get away with it forever. At, at some point, you look at it and you realize the only way out of this $16 trillion t- trap is a currency revaluation. And I just don't see that being good for anybody. No, it'll be horrible. It was horrible in Russia in the 90s. It was horrible in Argentina and other places. And if people think that it can't happen here because we're not Spain, we're not Greece, we're not Russia, we're not Argentina. I would just point them to two examples, uh, Hurricane Katrina and the L.A. riots, when, for whatever reason, there is no law and order. Um, bad stuff starts to happen, and, and it's predictable. And there's almost a universal timeline of 72 hours. I mean, this this is not something that is, is new to the world or to world history. The idea that America is somehow insulated from bad stuff because we're Americans is really tragic. I'm, I'm proud to be American. I love my country, and it's a great country. But we're not immune from things like cholera, things like a lack of law and order, things like uh, with no refrigeration, food goes bad, and people go hungry. Look at just-in-time inventory where we get everything on a semi-truck from a 1,000 miles away, and that requires a bunch of diesel fuel, that requires safe passage on the highways, and that requires an Internet 
to do all the, the switching and the logistics to make sure the trucks are full of what they're supposed to be full of. It requires truck drivers who are getting paid. I mean, it requires all this fragile stuff, and we just assume that's the way it is. And that's the, the different perspective that I have and you have because the way we grew up and where we grew up, we've, we've seen that the power goes out. We've seen that, you know, people, people get hungry on occasion. I mean, we know what it's like, and we're unlike... I think the majority of Americans, to be quite honest, and we need to get back to the way you and I were because it's more real and it's going to be more suited for what's coming. And I don't think people appreciate the time it takes to switch over. Um, it seems unrelated, but it's not. I was just at a permaculture class where I was a guest lecturer, and one of the students, young, idealistic young girl, probably about 20 years old, you know, and nothing wrong with that, but just very idealistic, said, well, do you think if we turned all of the farms and and things like that in America today into permaculture model farms, it would work and it would feed the country. I said, absolutely. She said, but you said we can't just do it. And I said, we can't. And what I mean by this, we can't just switch it over. That If you wanted to do that, there would be this phasing in, phasing out model that would have to take place. And she said, why? I said, because if you don't do it that way, the current system isn't designed to accommodate it, and people will die in the millions. And you could yeah. see her face just with a mixture of, I know that's true, but God, I don't want to believe that's true because this is this wonderful thing that we should be moving towards. And just because something might even be a better model doesn't mean you can just flip a switch and go from here to there overnight. And the problem with the collapse is it forces that. Instead of us taking the time to make these switches over time as people keep their head in the sand, we wake up one day, and like you're saying, it's a slow collapse. But wouldn't aren't you of the opinion that, like, Everybody that's asleep will think it happens overnight when it becomes something they can't turn away from. They'll, they'll think yeah. it just happened. Yeah, they'll they'll turn around and say, "What? How did this happen? How did how did this all build up? How could this possibly be?" And uh, we'll have the answers, but we'll be too busy. I think preppers will be busy helping people. Um, charity. Uh, we'll be protecting people. We'll be feeding people, not just our own families, but but others. Um, and so, yeah, people are going to be stunned that this could even happen. And it's going to, it's going to get at the absolute root of everything they've ever known, their entire worldview. If you think that milk comes from cartons and you think that, uh, Big Macs just come out of drive-through windows, if, if that's what you think, and that's what most Americans think, then when there's, there's no more milk in stores and there's no more Big Macs, you're going to, be in an absolute and total loss. It's like somebody said, oh, by the way, starting tomorrow, gravity is going to be inverted and stuff's going to fly upward and, you know, all that other stuff. It's just an absolute reworking of reality for these people. And that's one of the two reasons why normalcy bias is going to take off like wildfire because people, it can't compute. They cannot get their mind around the new reality. The other, the second reason that normalcy bias will take off and probably get a lot of people killed, unfortunately, is they're going to want to believe that everything's like it was. They're going to want that hamburger to pop out of that drive through window so much. They're going to yeah, stay around. Believe, stay yeah, in gonna, your homes. Order will be restored soon. The lights will be back on by tomorrow. They'll want to believe that, so they will. Exactly. And and that's, that's what preppers are going to be at a great advantage uh, for. We're going to, we know that that's not the case. We're not going to be standing around waiting for, you know, the government to drive up and hand us a Big Mac. Um, we're going to do what needs to be done. We're going to have that head start 
that other people aren't going to have. And this gets to the whole drinking out of the fire hose thing. There's a thread about that on the forum, too. And, you know, a prepper one time, it was a couple years ago, said, I'm so overwhelmed. There's so much stuff I need to do. I feel like I'm drinking out of a fire hose, you know. And a lot of people, me included, said, hey, you know, take it easy, take it slow, do stuff. You've mentioned this on your podcast. But if you're even in the mindset of a prepper and maybe you don't have stuff and you don't have plans, but you've just thought this through and you're listening to you and me talk today and you're thinking, yeah, this bad stuff could happen. I'm telling you, you're ahead of, you know, 85% of the population, 90% of the population, because you can even conceive that things can go wrong. Now build on that and do all the prepping you can, because I think time's pretty short to be quite honest. So get stuff done, but understand that the mindset is the first part of it. And, and that's talked about in the book. Um, the mindset is the first part of it, and the the stuff will flow from there. Um, yeah, I think the acceptance it. that it can happen is the single biggest step a person can take. Um, yeah. And whether it occurs the way we think it will or not, and there's a lot of good reason to believe, unfortunately, that we are right about what we're saying, the acceptance that it can go wrong allows you to deal with something when it does. Yes, yeah. exactly. So we do need to be getting some stuff together. So let's talk about some of the things that are covered in the book and some of the things you've personally done and kind of how you've done them, dragging someone along the way for a while that wasn't really wanting to go down the road with you, uh, the uh, the reluctant spouse, uh, which is a common thing for both men and women. Now, when I started doing this, I thought I'll have 95% male listeners, and it's always going to be the woman that's the reluctant spouse. And I would say it's probably a 60-40 split male-female, with the female being the smaller number, that's still a huge number. And there, I have more women telling me they can't get the old man on board than I have men saying they can't get the uh, the wife on board. So yeah. one of the first things that we want to do when we cross this bridge is to start doing some food storage. How did, how did you handle that in that scenario where you're not exactly on board, you know, a unified household, so to speak, on this concept? I uh, I use deception and spill. That's how I handle it. Uh, <laughs> and and my wife is going to listen to this. And uh, by the way, she knows about the book. She knows about my secret life, and uh, and she's been very cool about it. So that's good news. But to answer your question, how did I approach the food? I was um, in the middle of Eastern Washington on a business trip, listening to one of your very first podcasts. I listened to it in early August 2008. I think it was recorded in late July 2008. So it's probably episode. I don't know, 14 or something. Something like that, yeah. And you were talking about the basics of food preparation, about beans, rice, pasta, uh, what stores well, uh, vacuum sealing. You were talking about getting things that can be either, you know, eaten, they're all ready to eat, which is uh, not too many things, or you just need, you know, water or hot water to cook them. And I listened to that, and I thought, this makes a ton of sense. Then I started running through in my mind what the price of this stuff was. You know, I, I've been to Costco and seen that 50 pounds of red beans or pinto beans was, I don't know what it was at the time. Let's say it's about 25, 30 bucks right now. And I thought, holy smokes, you could, you could feed a family kind of an anchor basic kind of thing for, for what, a month or something? I mean, I started running through how cheap it was. And I thought, well, that's a great way to save money. Um, but anyway, so I started thinking about that, and I started, I got on the forum, and I learned all I could. So I learned what I needed to do. And then um, I went to, there's a, a discount uh, grocery store, kind of restaurant supply place called Cash and Carry. And they're, they're a chain of them on the western United States. They're, they're probably 
go by different names, but it's the same thing, you know, everywhere in the country. And I went there and I, and I got, uh, a bunch of food. Uh, it, in retrospect, it actually wasn't that much, but you know, a 50 pound bag of rice and, uh, 50 pounds of beans and some pancake mix. Um, my son loves pancakes, so I want to get pancake mix. And I got some syrup, I went to the dollar store and got, and that's a great place, by the way, to get prepper stuff in small little portions and everything. And everything's a dollar, so it's pretty cheap. You but know, I've things- actually, now that you say that, I've kicked around running a dollar store, uh, survival kit competition where you get, <laughs> you get 20 bucks plus the sales tax doesn't count because it's different in every every state. But you can buy twenty items from the dollar store and put a kit together and post it, and we pick a winner. I don't I don't want to derail you there, but I, every time I walk into one of them places, I'm like, oh, I could use that, I could use that, I could use that, and I think it'd be a really cool thing to do. Yeah, and there was even a thread um, on the TSP forum about the dollar store, um, and so that helped out. So I had this food, and then. I realized I needed a place to put it. I actually realized that before I got the food. But my next problem was, um, where do I put the food? And I didn't have the cabin at the time. So um, uh, I got a little rental storage space in a bad part of town, by the way. And so and it was on the second floor with no elevator. So I would uh, I would love these 50-pound you know, sacks of rice and beans up this stair. And I had to do it in the middle of the night because the people running the rental place said they can't, can't have any food in here because there'll be rats. So I broke the rules. I feel bad about that. And I went and I got a vacuum sealer and an extension cord. And in my little teeny, you know, storage unit space, I, I was vacuum sealing, you know, beans and rice. It's just pathetic when I think about it. I had to do it, though. It was my job. I had to take care of my family. And given that I couldn't do it out in the open because of my wife's, at that time, you know, reluctance to do any of this, um, uh, I just had to do it. I had to man up and do it. So there I am, and I and I get that stuff taken care of. That was kind of the initial batch. I did a couple more runs and did a similar thing. I um, I had to money launder, of course. I mean, we all have to do that when we have these restrictions. <laughs> yeah. So, so what I did was I had expense checks from work. This is described in the book. This is all real. I mean, I couldn't make that stuff up. I had expense checks from work, and I just cashed them and, and put them in a little envelope and, uh, and paid for stuff with cash, which is always a good idea, by the way. Yeah. But it was especially a good idea in this circumstance. And uh, built up some food. And then next, uh, with guns, I'd, I'd always done shooting and always liked guns. And I went to a gun store. I describe it in the book as as, uh, you know, going to a porn store, you know, there's like, which I don't go to, but I mean, this, this kind of place, it seemed that a gun store was this shameful, horrible place you didn't want to be caught at because only bad things were sold there. And I got, and I realized that's absolutely stupid. I mean, I, I literally, I was scared to go to a gun store because I thought, you know, there's something wrong with me. I think that I, I need a gun. Uh, and. See, and you're a guy, but you, you grew up with guns. But you've know, been exactly. so so brainwashed by the circles that you were running with because you're in this you know white collar world that, that you had begun to believe that even though you knew better. Exactly. And boy, after my first couple trips there, um, the the shame wore off, and I uh, I started hanging out. Actually, I became I, I ended up with shop privileges at this gun store. It's a fantastic gun store. I changed the name in the book. Uh, it's not really Capital City Guns, but that's the name in the book. It's amazing community of people. And I, I say I had shop privileges. I started going there and hanging out. I would come in there at lunch because I couldn't handle the lawyers and lobbyists and politicians and accountants and stuff that I was hanging out with every day because they were all insane, you know, to one degree or another with all this denial that they were. <laughs> but anyway, so I'd go to the gun store to hang out with normal people. And, um, 
I started learning how to put ARs together because they had a shop there and they would assemble ARs. And then I'd come in and I remember I'd take my necktie and flip it over my shoulder and roll up my sleeves and I would start building some bolts or maybe some trigger assemblies or maybe putting some barrels together at lunch just for fun. I didn't get paid or anything. It was just a cool thing to do. And so I um, started doing that. So the gun thing um, came about and, and I won't go into, you know, all, all the, the model numbers and all the calibers and everything, but the, uh, the three gun battery, four gun battery, if you count 22s was how I started. I started slow like that. And, you know, you made a comment early, early on, probably, geez, over four years ago, you said, Hey guys out there, if you think that prepping is an excuse to buy an $1,100 tricked out 1911, then you're not doing this right. You know, take some yep. of that money and buy other stuff, and this is not an excuse to buy a bunch of toys. And I took that to heart and um, started slow and built up. And now, you know, I've got I, I got a, a bunch of good, decent guns, not super fancy ones, but I learned a lot about them. I know what I need. I don't. I know what I don't need, and all that other stuff. So that was the the gun part of it. Um, and then in 2009, uh, it's described very accurately in the in the book uh, through a, um, I think, miraculous set of circumstances, I all of a sudden had a cabin uh, on salt water, um, you know, away from Olympia where I live, but, you know, in western Washington, basically handed to me, um, which I think was divine. I think it, it, that's just what I think it was. And uh, it was perfect for prepping. It had a lot of storage. Being on the salt water, I have access to the Puget Sound, and uh, that, the flip side of that is bad guys have access to my cabin from Puget Sound, but we have some defenses set up for that. But uh, So I had that place, and and that took off, and then I started meeting the neighbors out there at the cabin. Um, I call the development out there Pierce Point, which is a made-up name, but, I mean, that's, that's where it is in the book. And um, um, I started getting to know my neighbors, who I found out are preppers, um, they're some of my best friends. Um, they've got my back and I've got theirs. And uh, they're described in the book as the Colsons and the Morels. And they're real people, uh, real neighbors. And um, we started building up this little prepper community. And um, at the same time all this was happening, I mentioned this earlier, um, started shooting with some guys. Um, we came, I guess, named ourselves the team. And complete civilians, no mall ninjas. I can't stand mall ninjas or people that, <laughs> that I can't stand that stuff. You know, I'm a grown up. I'm in my forties and uh I am I'm a mature, reasonable person. I am not I've never been in the military. I've never been in a law enforcement agency. I'm not trying to do that. I, I like guns, I like shooting. I've kind of excelled uh, the team by the way. We uh we've actually started giving people tactical shooting lessons. And, uh, um, you know, we're doing that here in Western Washington. People can contact me if they want to. I mean, we actually go and we shoot. We, we have this amazing, and i, I got to be vague here, so sorry about this. We have this amazing set of friends, and we get to end up shoot. We get to shoot at, at, at SWAT ranges and, and some, some military ranges, not owned by the military, but owned by contractors who train military and SWAT folks. And we get to go out and shoot with some of these guys. We've never shot with military units because we can't, and that's cool, but with some of the SWAT units. And recently we've been coming in in the middle of the pack um, with some of the, the SWAT guys. Now, the SWAT guys who are better than us are way better than us. I mean, it's not <laughs> even close. So I want to be yeah. super clear about that. But that gets to the whole no mall ninja stuff. 
we are guys. We're all self-trained. We all have white-collar jobs. Um, the guys on the team, as I describe in the book, are, are honestly 20 years younger than I am, which, by the way, is kind of a kick. They're in their mid-20s. And I'll tell you what, i, I got to work out a couple hours a day to keep up with these guys, and it's a challenge, right? It's kind of cool um, being with these younger guys. They keep me on my game. But anyway, we've self-taught ourselves. We've had friends, former military guy in particular, who has helped us, and it's all normal stuff. It's all steel targets. We don't. We don't play army. We're not trying to blow up buildings or anything crazy. That's the other thing that was important with this whole group, this team. I've known them now for three years, and I'm I'm constantly testing them. I know them well, but I'm constantly testing them and making sure it's not some, you know, some army wannabe group. I can't stand yeah. that kind of stuff because, yeah. number one, you're going to get yourself killed. You, you look stupid and pathetic doing that stuff. You really do. And and second of all, you could end up going to jail, and that is not a good prepping plan. My goal is to live through what I'm entirely certain is coming, okay? Yeah. And one way to not live through what's coming is to be stuck in jail for a weapons violation that was stupid to start with. So, you know, I have no desire. I, I hang out with grown-ups is my point. Uh, with yeah, and I mean, my, my statement has always been when you're putting together prepper groups, if you get any kind of a wing nut that tries to become part of the group and starts talking about things like overthrowing the government or making bombs or crap like that, they're either a Fed infiltrator, they're an idiot, or they're both. And get, <laughs> get rid of them instantly. And be careful who you let into a group. And I think that there has to be kind of a... You know, you don't even need to t tell them that it's a group. It's kind of like they're being vetted without knowing it before you kind of give them a little bit more. And, and I'm not talking about, you know, super high-level obstacle here. I'm just talking about freaking common sense. And there are people out there that start telling you about their military background. I'm sure you've met them, Glenn. And, oh, and you yeah. start going, oh, I saw Charlie Sheen do that. And I saw that was in Casualties of War. And that was – and you're going, what, what the hell's wrong with you? And those people need to be avoided like freaking uh, Typhoid Mary. Seriously. Exactly. And, yeah, I we, we found out without knowing, all of us on the team, because remember, we just started shooting together. It was Sunday afternoons. We'd hang out. And then we started shooting and hanging out. And then we'd go to dinner afterwards, starting to get to know each other. Um, we'd start reloading. We still reload one night a week. We uh, do that and hang out and, and got to know the wives and the girlfriends. My my wife doesn't come over, but, you know, um, the other wives and, and girlfriends and everything, and got to know each other. And it never was some, hey, let's have this, you know, team together of gun guys. It was never like that. It was let's have fun, let's do some cool stuff. We found out that we were all preppers. We didn't know. We sort of stumbled into it. And, um, and that's kind of how I think it needs to be is stumbling into it. I think a, a great way, I get this question sometimes, you know, hey, this team sounds really cool. How do you get yourself a team? And I said, I don't know, because I think it just kind of fell into place. I think it's an unusual situation. But I'll tell you this, hang out with preppers and do prepper stuff, and then maybe the guns will flow. If the gun part is the driving force, it's probably not going to work out so well, because guns are only one small part of prepping. I mean, you can't eat guns, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have a bunch of food, but no guns, someone's going to maybe take your food. So I understand you need both. But um, this isn't in, in the book, by the way, and you've seen this from book one. The book isn't about guns. The story isn't about guns. There's there's gunfights because there will be gunfights. 
there's some military stuff because I think there will be some military stuff, but it's probably 85% about people, um, 10% about prepping things, and maybe 5% about guns and, and that kind of stuff because this is all about people. This is how people change. This is how people confront the, the, the situations they're thrust in, about how uh, people didn't expect this, how they react, and, and how people make mistakes. They do dumb things. My character in this book uh, does dumb things. He's weak. Uh, he's too emotional sometimes. No, he does smart things and strong things. But, I mean, there's a mixture of things. So it's all real. Well, and that's because it's, it's like, about- realistic. We all do dumb things. There's a commercial about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, we all do dumb things. If you have a character that never does anything wrong, it's not a believable character. Um, and and I, I really, really like the level of character development that you did in the story, and I think it's something that's missing from a lot of the uh, the, the similar genre stuff out there. I do want to push you over a little bit because we kind of glossed over it, but you know, setting up a bug out location with this cabin. Um, yeah. I remember talking to you, and what's cool, folks, is you can all this stuff he's talking about. He did is on the survival podcast form. Um, if you go look up Threads by Heavy G there, you'll see this is all stuff that actually happened, and there was a lot of camaraderie and help from the forum along the way with this walk. But I remember telling you something along the lines of, well, don't worry. It's not a bug-out location. It's a vacation home. Proper white-collar people have vacation homes. So that was kind of how you sold the, the, the spouse on it, right? Exactly right. And it's like you've talked about, it's more than just a slogan with you. It's the way you've structured this whole philosophy of prepping in this podcast. You know, if times get tough or even if they don't, there's a lot of meaning in that. So the cabin was for if times got tough or, as you mentioned, with a nice little vacation place, even if they don't. And that's and that's a big use of, of the cabin. I don't just go out there and, you know, put on a gas mask and start thinking about the world ending and stuff. I mean, that's not fun. I mean, it's a right now today, it's a beautiful, sunny, early fall day in western Washington. It's about 70 degrees. Going out to the cabin. Uh, right there on the water, evergreen trees, mountains in the background. I can I can get clams. I can get oysters. There's salmon there. Um, you know, there's all kinds of and there's a deck and there's sunshine and all this other stuff. There's a million non-prepping reasons um, to have the place, and that's exactly kind of how I approach it. Because I I put up a thread and uh, and I said I didn't get a homestead, and here's why, or something. I forget the exact wording. I was not in a position. To, to get basically a homestead, um, I would have liked, and I'm not complaining a bit about the cabin, don't get me wrong, but I would have liked a place that had some uh, space that I can garden. I, I don't have any space to garden um, at the cabin, which is, you know, which is a downside, I have to admit. Um, but there was a, an alternate place, and I think I talked about this in the book, I can't remember, but um, the first place I wanted to get was... Um, pretty much on the water without direct access to the water, but it had plenty of space for growing crops and stuff like that. And that's what I wanted to do. My, my wife vetoed that and said, we well, know we need a place where we've got direct beach access because that'd be a ve- better kind of vacation place. And I said, okay, cool. That works for me. So, and I remember explaining, listen, um, you got to play the hand you're dealt. I mean, I'm, I, I have this opportunity to get a bug out location. Uh, it can't be a homestead. Here's why. And, um, but everybody was cool with it. I, I, you know, I, I remember your response to it was, yeah, that's cool. And it was exactly what you mentioned. You said, Hey, you know, it's a great vacation place. So there's, there's that too. And I also didn't want to, um, get carried away, uh, with the whole prepper thing and turn this, 
you know, cabin into some kind of armed compound. Um, <laughs> that's to be avoided. Um, so there you go. Yeah, that's that's how my rather unique approach to the BOL. A lot of people get homesteads, and that's good for them. I mean, I think that would be cool. Um, but, you know, I do have clams and oysters. I mean, I do have some self-sufficiency out there. Well, yeah, and you've got access to the ocean, which is an entire food source onto itself when used properly, and it fit your life. And I, I remember you were saying something about solar one time. I'm like, hey, that's green energy, man, you know. And I think that, like, that's one of the biggest things we can do to flip a spouse, so to speak, is to do all of the things that they're okay with that are prepping, right? Yeah. Do those first. you got to do them anyway, so do the, do the, the spouse-friendly stuff first and then start pointing out the security that they provide. Because what I found is that the biggest resistance that you get is people don't like when you expose the vulnerability. So selling prepping to somebody by exposing vulnerability when they're 100% vulnerable is almost impossible. They're vulnerable at that point by choice, and they don't want to be told how bad it really is. But if you begin to first take away the vulnerabilities wherever you can do that and then point out the security that provides and say we could be more secure with A, B, C, and D now, that's a much easier sell uh, than saying, hey, we're totally screwed right now. Did you know that? Yep. Well, people will be defensive. They will recoil away from this. And, and, and I mentioned um, in the book, and I mentioned in our first interview, the Easter Bunny, and that's how I approach you know, my spouse with this, and that was um, I, I had to come up with a reason if we bugged in why the uh, garage suddenly was full of food and some water filters and some ammunition cans and some guns. And instead of saying to my wife, you were wrong, I was right, I prepped even though you didn't want me to, and, you know, we're going to do things my way because I was right and you're wrong. Boy, I'll tell you what um, – even if you make it through whatever it is that's making you bug in, um, marriage is probably not going to do so well thereafter. And you need to both be on the same team during this very, very stressful event. And so that was not how I was going to do it. Um, I decided to do a cover story of the Easter Bunny. That's how all this stuff materialized. It was the Easter Bunny <laughs> who brought it by. And then just kind of smile and say, okay, dear, we have some pancake mix. Let's make some pancakes for the kids and let's, do everything we can think of to make the kids as comfortable and feeling as normal as possible. I mean, forget the whole I told you so thing. This is about no. surviving. And that's that's what a man does. I mean, a man takes care of things and he doesn't he doesn't worry about the whole I was right, you're wrong thing. So that's a that's a critical way to go go into this and to try to flip a spouse. And I don't fully know how flipped my spouse is because we won't know until the the collapse hits and we have to we have to find out. I, I think she's certainly on the right road, but um, if it turns out as well with her as I think it will, um, by the way, this is all covered on the flip that spouse thread on the forum. I mean, it's like a three-year-old thread. It's got 400 entries, and you can just see chronologically how this whole thing developed. A lot of people tell me that's, that's interesting reading because they can relate to it. But anyway, um, I, I think that if this thing turns out well and, and she's on board like I think she is, I'll look back and realize that the Easter Bunny approach and not the I told you so approach is probably what did it, probably saved the marriage because um, in a bad event, you know, it wouldn't go well. It might even save one or both of our lives just by being decent about stuff and not being a jerk. I mean, that's that's not much to ask. 
Yeah, I, I don't think we need to be jerks to our spouses. I mean, that's just, you know, and I, that's, I get a lot of times, and it's not just spouses, a lot of times people are going, you know, so-and-so is so resistant to this, and, and what do I do? What do I say? And, and my answer is generally stop. Stop pushing and start being an example. Show the positive side of things, and people are attracted to that. As soon as you meet resistance, is the, the point that you stop pushing when you're trying to get an idea across. Uh, at that point, the harder you push, the more difficult your job will eventually become. And it, it's, just a, it's a psychological constant. Uh, it's how the human mind works. That I don't want you to push me. And I've done it with people in rooms and seminars where I've had somebody stand up and I'll say, put your hand up like you're about to swear on the Bible and take an oath, you know, and they put their, their right hand up, you know, and you walk forward and you take your hand and you push against their hand. And the very first thing they do is resist. <laughs> and you go, did I ask you to follow instructions carefully when you stood up? And they go, yes. I go, what did you do when I pushed? And they say, I pushed back. I said, did I ask you to do that? And they say, no. And I ask them why. And they say, either I don't know or it just seemed like what I should do. And that's just that's just the human psychology. I've had one person out of doing this a hundred times ruined it for me and went all limp armed. And I'm not yeah. convinced they didn't know what I was doing either. <laughs> <laughs> they were from a competitor and they wanted to make you look bad. No, yeah. the, um, the resistance thing, and and I I know this is going to sound self serving, and I apologize in advance, but it's an, an honest and genuine answer. How do you convince a reluctant spouse? I honestly believe that you should get the book and read it. Books one and two um, would be the ones for convincing folks. And books three through ten, the story really takes off, and it's about other stuff. But books one and two, read them yourself and see if this is right. I don't want people to start handing books to their spouses, because this is a huge deal in a marriage, right? If your spouse isn't on board, you're concerned that there's a collapse coming. Your spouse is not on board. This is a huge, huge deal. You don't want to do this wrong. So test it yourself. See if the message in this book is right. And see if it's if it's going to work. I I think it will because first of all I'm getting tons of emails and and PMs and other things from people who are telling me it is. But you know what? It worked for me. It was this long long process. And and you've seen Jack as you've read it how how this this dynamic is going on and then how people change in book two. I won't blow it for you, but um, you know the the wife in there who's named Lisa in the book um, comes around. And uh, pretty much comes around. Um, and so people who have read books one and two can see that there was a very realistic portrayal of a spouse who was reluctant, but then got convinced. And the, the way she was convinced is in the book, and maybe that could help people, you know, convince convince a spouse. So I recommend it to people. And I, I'm sorry to sound self-serving, but... No, it's, it's a damn really? sorry author that doesn't promote his own book. <laughs> That's true. No, but it's something, as I mentioned in the very beginning, you said, what's the reaction been? And the first thing I was talking about, I get these, these emails from people saying that they, they flipped a spouse based on this book, and I get, I get choked up. I get, I get goosebumps because it's so important to me because I've lived it, and I understand how important it is. My wife is the most important person on earth. Um, the kids are in, the, in there too, obviously, but it's a big, big deal, and, and we're all going to have big, big choices and big problems and big normalcy bias to deal with in the next, I don't know when it's going to happen, but in the, in the near future. And, and I can help people with this. And I, I find that fantastic. And I'm blessed to be able to help people this way. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it's extremely rewarding. And, uh, 
I think that it, it, our group as a whole, when I say the whole, I mean the TSP community, there's so many people doing that. And I think that it shocks people the first time that they really make a difference with somebody, how amazing it actually does feel when you hear somebody say, well, I'm doing this because you said or because you did or because I noticed that you were. Uh, those types of things are just absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's 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 heartfelt because the stakes are high. It's not like I spent a lot of time and energy and finally convinced somebody that the Seahawks are a better football team than Pittsburgh Steelers. That doesn't matter. Living through a collapse matters. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's hard to convince people of things that aren't true anyway. Um, <laughs> another another subject, though, that, that you're big on, and of course I am as well, is that we should be able to get prepared without end, you know ending up a uh, billion dollars in debt. I see it all the time, and, and not on our forum, but in other forums and threads where people just say, it doesn't matter, it's all going to collapse anyway, You know, just go out and spend it on MasterCard, and when it collapses, it won't matter because the food will be more important than the bill. And staying out of debt when you prep is is a pretty big deal with you. Absolutely. First of all, yeah, yeah. staying out of debt is a good idea yeah. under any circumstance, not just getting ready for a collapse. But that, that whole MasterCard thing, I'm going to buy a year's worth of freeze-dried food and put it on MasterCard, assumes that the collapse is going to come in about six weeks. And guess what? It's taken longer than you and I think it is. Yep. I mean, I'll be honest. My time frame's off. Um, I need to be honest with people. I'm surprised that a full-on, visible, you know, discernible, real-life, everybody-gets-a-collapse hasn't already happened. So let's and, and they are slow collapses. That's how that's how they are. So it's not going to be in a couple of weeks. Um, I've seen you know at the gun store, for example, I've seen guys come in. It's, it's always guys that do this, um, and um, you know they'll they'll have their wife or something in tow and maybe like a baby or two, and a guy will walk up and he'll buy the most tricked out ornamental AR-15 he can possibly get. And it's you know two thousand dollars or something. He plops down a credit card. I remember this one time, and you know his wife said we can't afford this. And they started arguing and everything. And he basically started yelling at her and said, "No, we're gonna get this. We've got to do this. Zombies are coming, or whatever you know thing excuse he used." And um, I know a couple things. First of all, that marriage is is maybe not going to do so well, and that's going to be a problem. Second of all, I know that in about a year. I'm going to be able to walk into that gun store, and that tricked-out AR-15 is going to be back on the shelves because it got returned because the guy couldn't afford his credit card. Now he's got debt, no wife, and no AR-15. That was a bad trade. So that's staying out of debt. But how I did it was incrementally with cash. Um, I had the advantage. I don't know if everyone can do this, but the expense checks with work and everything, and I basically, sorry to my wife who's going to hear this at some point, I basically quit depositing the expense checks in the family account and just kind of started cashing them and putting them in a cash envelope. By the way, it's handy to have a couple hundred bucks in cash around at any given time because ATMs can, you know, not work and all that other stuff. So I did it slowly, and I figured out what I was doing, um, both with food preps and uh, with guns. I, I, I figured out what I needed to buy. I would listen to people on the forum. I would put up a thread and say, hey, I'm thinking about – doing this, buying this, or something like that. What do you guys think? And there would be a dozen people that would say, Here, here's been my experience. You might want to consider this. Try this model. You don't need this particular feature. And so I went about it slowly. Now, I say I went about it slowly. I always had basically a backup plan for running out and having to get a bunch of food if I need to. You, you kind of need to have a backup plan. You can't be kind of 
lazy and completely deliberative about this and think yeah let me be clear when i say stay out of debt if if the tv was scrolling that were in imminent collapse and you have a mastercard with a twenty thousand dollar limit and there is a window to grab some stuff at that point if you've delayed that long yeah you would you would just do whatever you got to do um but in this this time that we have to prepare this methodical approach you're talking about is the way to go because the the problem is that so many people they only have a plan for failure. They don't they don't know what success looks like. So we have to be prepared just like with life insurance. I, I plan to live and I have a plan for if I die. So I have a plan for if the if, if they pull another rabbit out of the hat for another five year kick of the can. Who knows? We have to plan for both of those roads. Exactly. Times get tough or even if they don't. You gotta have a plan for both. Yeah. That's that's absolutely right. And um, the other thing is that I, I viewed it this way, and I talk about it in the book. Um, I think it's in book one, and you might have read this. Um, um, my daughter, who's named Amanda in the book, um, uh, I had a deal with her. And uh, at the time, I think she was 14. And uh, I said, and this is a big deal. You're a 14-year-old, and your dad says the following. I said, Amanda, um, I'm doing some prepping. I told her about it, and I said, you get to tell me if I'm losing my head or if I'm being unreasonable. Wouldn't that be cool to be 14 and your dad says, if I'm being unreasonable, you get to tell me because I kind of empowered her and everything. But I thought it was important. I wanted to have a check on myself so that I didn't run out and do crazy stuff. And so um, because – and the reason I bring that up is if if I lose my head and start running out and, and overdoing it, I'm probably going to do other dumb things. I'm going to spend money that I don't have. Um Maybe one, you know, some crazy wingnut, you know, gets in a shooting group and tells me that, you know, it'd be a great idea to convert a semi-automatic uh, rifle to a fully automatic one, and I'm stupid, and say, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. So there's a lot of I, I could get so extreme and so wound up that my wife says, you need to just leave. You're crazy. I mean, there are there are a bunch of bad things that can happen from 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 not being reasonable about this. So I, I wanted to have a reality check. And I thought, what better reality check than a 14-year-old girl, right? <laughs> I think that's a great one. I think that's a great reality check. And when you couple that with buying cash, so now you've got this cash reserve you're creating for yourself, but it's not an infinite reserve. So with cash, it's very clear that like there's only so many 20s in this envelope, and if I expend five of them to buy $100 worth of gear, they're gone. So yep. I have to actually think methodically about – What's really important as a next step as opposed to I'll pay the bill at the end of the month? Yeah, I approach this um, a little bit, this prepping thing, a little bit like a business. Now, obviously, you know, you can't have too many um, uh, business-like features to it because it's not a business. But I thought about I thought about cash flow. I thought about financing, um, inventory, um, all these kind of things, regulatory compliance, I mean, with the whole gun thing. Um, and so, yeah, you, you have to you have to approach it because it's important. This is not um, this is not watching a zombie movie and deciding you're going to go do stuff. This is real life, and this is important, and you have to treat it accordingly. And and that's what I did, and that's what's described um, in book one and in book two. And then, in, just to, to do a little bit of discussion about books three through ten. When the community forms up and all the things that happen out there, um, you're going to see different kinds of intelligent planning about how to get a community together. 
um, a friend of mine who's a mutual friend of ours who I'll tell you about off air and you'll say, oh, okay, I know what you're talking about. A mutual friend of ours who is in the special operations community um, has read the entire series. He was one of my um, people who looked at this in advance. And he said that he thinks this is the best description when I talk about how the community forms up and that one of the best descriptions of an American um, insurgency, I hate to use those terms because it sounds so creepy and weird, um, that, that he thinks is out there because it was about how a group takes care of itself and doesn't need to rely on the outside world. I don't mean insurgency like overthrowing governments because insurgents have to survive um the other stuff they do is kind of up to them, and I'm not getting into that. But anyway, so um, that's that's important. So this methodical don't-lose-your-head planning um, wasn't just for me personally. It was for this community that forms up. And I think that one of the things we'll be talking about in the future is is the description of how the community comes together um, and how, pardon me for saying it, I hope I don't sound arrogant, I think it's a model for how folks can – get communities put together to do limited things for a limited amount of time um, and do them well. So look forward to that. That's books three through ten. Awesome. And I'll tell you, I think that that dynamic is starting to play out more. As much as I detest shows like Doomsday Preppers, it shows an awareness that there's something to be concerned about. And I'm talking to more and more people. When I first started doing this show – uh, I was still in you know mainstream business world as a business person. And when people would ask me what I did, I would generally talk about my mainstream business life. And I, I had to be very judicious and careful that I didn't cast a negative light on the three companies that I was a partner in because there were, you know, a hundred salaries combined at stake with the goodwill of those businesses. So I kept kind of a low profile. And when I did tell somebody about the podcast that was, you know, didn't really know me from Adam, I left out the up. So it was one or the other. And when I would tell people about the podcast, usually I'd get, Oh, Oh, okay. Yeah. One of those things by about 2010, I was getting really, where do I find this at? You know, and, and now um, what I get immediately is either, which is which is awesome when you hear, oh, I listen, you're that guy, I listen to you. That's that's like the the most awesome thing in the world. But if not, where do I find this? And then I get a story about what this person is already doing, and we're seeing more and more. But I can't give away the name of the person, but there's a very well known person. Uh, in the Dallas market, who is now a huge customer of American Open Currency Standard for gold and silver, and uh, put over $2 million into gold and silver in the uh, past couple months, and met uh, Rob Gray of AOCS through his attorney, because this gentleman and Rob's lawyer just happened to be on a couple of machines at a gym, and this gentleman said to Rob's attorney, when some stuff was on, you know, they have the news there when you're on this equipment, you know the whole world's going to hell, right? And, uh, you know, a conversation picked up from there. That type of stuff wasn't happening in 2008. People like you and I were freaking crazy in 2008. Now we're like, oh, those are the same prepper guys, you know? Actually, there's a delineation now between the insane and the sane. Um, so that gives me hope that these these communities – can be put together because the first thing you need people to be willing to cooperate is an understanding that there's a need. Yeah, I mean, yeah. last week I had a conversation with the guy who is the real Ben Trenton in the book, by the way. Um, and um, 
he knows about the book, so he knows about me. But um, and he said to me, um, you know what? Uh, how do I uh, buy gold and silver, and uh, how can I uh, get some food reserves going? And and he said, I think I need to get one of those year-long supplies of uh, freeze-dried food. And I said, we can do that, and, and it's good stuff. And um, you know, there's a there's a sponsor on the Survival Podcast who can help you with that. I said, but you and me, we should probably just go to cash and carry and uh, I'll show you about vacuum sealing and beans and rice and we're going to go do that. He's going to go shooting with me. Um, the shooting lessons that the, that me and the team put on, by the way, are, are full. I mean, the parking lot at the range that we use used to be empty and now it's, it's packed. I mean, people wait a, an hour or two to get a lane um, at the gun range and that never used to happen. So, People are figuring out, i got to be honest with you, I keep my identity very secret um, because I need to for a variety of reasons, but I'm feeling that it wouldn't be the end of the world if uh, more people knew, you know, what I'm doing because it is getting more and more acceptable. And I call it the conversation, um, and that's and that's in the book where I have the conversation with the, the neighbor at the cabin. Um, and that's where you kind of feel each other out and you say, so, you know, things are going kind of crazy, and, you know, when – there's no food in the stores and there's no gas. People are going to get kind of upset and what do you think is going to happen? And that conversation is getting easier and easier to have because, for example, if I watched the news this morning, apparently you did, um, Caledonia might be seceding from Spain. So, I mean, there's a reason to talk about this stuff. It's not crazy anymore. Well, yeah, and I mean, you're talking about, you know, the reason they're so ticked off is they're actually one of the places where success still exists but they're being pilfered to provide for the rest of the country as it collapses onto itself. Um, and, and I think that's, a, that's kind of a theme in, in your writing as well, that um, as a collapse occurs, we start hearing more and more calls for the successful to sacrifice. And they always say the wealthy, but the wealthy ends up being you and me. And uh, I, a lot of people say, well, you are wealthy, Jack. And I'm like, I live in a freaking mobile home. No, I you know you need, to, you need to redefine what you describe as wealth here. Now it's by choice, sure, but um, th- that is something that that I think really pushes people. And there was another news story, and I think it was France, where they were interviewing business people that were like, "I'm leaving," because they're talking now about pushing the top tax rate in France to seventy five percent. Yeah. And those are the types of things that you know, people say, well, that can't happen here. I don't care who's president. I don't care who's in Congress. There's a point where they go, we need it and we're taking it. Because they don't yeah. want to let go of the power that they have. And that's not conspiracy talk. That's, that's just fundamentals of power. No one in power wants to go, okay, I was wrong. You can have it all back now. We're sorry. It just doesn't, it's never happened in the, in the history of mankind. Yep, and there's and there's a description of that in in the book. I think the chapter is called something I believe it's other people's money, and it's based on <laughs> something I know about, and it's about a conversation, um, the governor's office uh, in a meeting room, and um, how are we going to get more revenue? Where we're going to raise taxes? Well, at some point, people are not going to pay more taxes, and then one of the government people says, "Hey, that's our money. That's our money. It belongs yeah. to us. It's for us to spend." Who do these people think they are? And and we've seen that, and we all know that. Um, if you're a TSP listener, you probably think that. But here's what I see happening as a result of that, and you are, you are getting at this, certainly. That is more and more people are going to drop out of, of this system where 
they work themselves to death quite literally, heart attacks, alcoholism, strokes, uh, a bunch of other stuff, um, exhaustion. They work themselves to death, and all this money goes to the government. We're seeing it. It's a little bit like the Ayn Rand novel, you know, where you have Atlas Shrugged, where you have Hank Reardon, um, you know, works really hard and all that other stuff, and then people just kind of start, you know, going galt and, and kind of dropping out of the economy because they don't, they don't, you know, see any reason to work super hard and give all their money to the government. We're already seeing that. Jack, there are people, I'm guessing, in your life, you know, who have scaled back immensely, aren't working as hard, aren't making as much, and their their whole approach is, hey, why would I why would I do this? All the money's going to the government. And we're going to see that more and more and more. And um, that's what the government can't really control because they can't make the tax rate 100%. I mean, they think they can, but they just can't. And that's one of the reasons I think the thing gets better. Now, it's, I mean, the thing meaning the economy and the situation and everything. Now, things will be bad. There will be a collapse, in my opinion, and things will be very nasty um, for a while and, and all that. But it can't go on. I'm getting to the point of sustainability and how unsustainable this whole thing is because the, the productive people, you can't even say that anymore. People think you're some kind of mean person for even using If you person. say productive, you're evil. Yeah, like like yeah. it's actually wrong to tell somebody that there's a difference between being productive and non-productive. There used to be millions of people that used that word every single day of their lives. We called them supervisors. Right. But, yeah. you know, I mean, that was it was your entire like I, when I came up, you know, in, in the business world, I kind of came up from the bottom, no college, no nothing. And I came through whatever path I could find to get there. And I worked in the construction industry. And I remember being like 22, 23 years old, supervising crews of people that were 10, 15 years older than me that didn't like to be told they weren't getting the job done or to go dig a hole. And it was because I grew up in the sticks, so to speak. I didn't even understand why people would like. What the hell is wrong with you people? You you have a job, you know, and 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 you're supposed to go do it now, and you're being unproductive. And but even then, at least it was like that's what you were supposed to do. Nowadays, people are fired for telling their workers they're not productive enough. That is that actually happens. Not not every day. It's like a conspiracy or anything. But there are places where okay, this guy has to go because he's driving his his crew too too hard. Well, that's supposed to be what we do is we judge what works by what comes out at the end. Now, one thing you said there that's very interesting is knowing people that have scaled back. I do know some have scaled back. I also know there's some that haven't. And some of these people were the ones when I said, you know what, I'm going off to do my own thing. I'm pulling out. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'm going to you know sell back my, my portion of things. Uh, some of these people that I've worked with in the past are multimillionaires. These people are very, very successful, and they were very – almost hurt by the fact that I was willing to walk away because they felt like here's this young up and coming guy. We're basically bringing him into the fold so he can be like us. And he's saying no, he wants to walk away, but I've maintained good friendships with them. And several of them have visited me. And now it's almost as though they envy my lifestyle, even though they have so much more, they realize in the simplicity of things, there's just, uh, there's, there's, there's a better way to live. And because they're wealthy people, they're also acutely aware of how dangerous the financial situation is. And I think a lot of them realize no matter what they do to preserve their wealth, it's a lifestyle that will preserve their life. And and I think that that is, uh, has been a big shift that I've seen. One of my really good friends was up at our home, and his first comment was, this feels like a home. 
mm-hmm. you know, and he has a beautiful house, but he was like, this feels like a home. And I, I took that as a huge compliment. And uh, I do see people, even very successful people saying, you know, this just doesn't make sense anymore. Um, I have a good friend that's always telling me he wants to save up so he can, you know, live out in the sticks. And I'm like, there's a couple million broke rednecks that live that way every day. You don't have to save up to be broke. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I know what you mean. And one of the things that I talk about more in books 3 through 10, I I look at some things that used to be true. Now this is in the future. So I look back at America. So I'm looking at current America. And I, you know, some of the characters say things like, boy, it was really crazy how, you know, both husband and wife would work really, really hard and, end up paying all these taxes because now after the collapse, these, these characters don't have, you know, re- regular jobs and they're doing things like growing food and chopping firewood and, you know, fixing things and doing those kinds of things. And they have more time together and they're saying, wow, it was kind of crazy how we used to live. And it's crazy how we used to not have, um, you know, the grandparents living with us and stuff like that. And that didn't, I mean, all these things were people after the collapse in America are getting back to the way things, A, used to be in America, but B, are the way they are around the world. Um, family is very important, um, um, all these kinds of things. And there's there's a million examples of that in the book. I won't go through each of them and, and ruin it. But it is a way, looking at a collapse and then looking at the way things used to be, it is a way to kind of critique modern-day society. And there's a lot of that in this book because I have some – pretty strong feelings that not only are things unsustainable economically and politically, I think they're unsustainable socially. The way we've decided to, um, I don't know, have everybody working really hard and everybody spending money they don't have and everybody stressed out and tired and everything else, um, it's not working. We all know it's not working, but it can't continue this way, and it's not going to. And we're going to return to the way most people have been most of the time in history, and it's going to look a lot like America several decades ago, and that's not such a terrible thing. It's not such a terrible thing. Yeah, I keep telling people, if you want the America of your grandparents, you need to start behaving like your grandparents. And It's such a simple but profound truth. Uh, we have rocked right past an hour here. We're about an hour and a quarter, so it's about time to wrap things up. So I'm going to ask you the question that, that most of the people that have already read your first couple of books want to know. When is uh, 3 and 4 coming out? <laughs> Mid-November 2012. Uh, we're going to have them out, and then we should have about every three months another two books set out. And I don't know how many times a day somebody tells me email or personal message-wise or they post on Facebook when, when, when are books three and four come out? I love hearing that. That that warms my heart. That is great stuff. But, yeah, mid-November, um, I'm almost done with the edits on book three that then go to the publisher. It takes me a week or two to do the edits on book four. I think we're slightly ahead of schedule, um, so it should be done and done right. There's an enormous amount of pressure now on the publisher to make sure that mid-November is, is indeed the date that things are done. I have every... They have to cash the check you've written with your keyboard in your mouth. <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah, it's coming out mid-November, and um, I think, by the way, books one and two were good. I like them very much. They're very important and necessary to develop characters. The gas pedal gets hit on book three. The gas pedal that accelerates the story is book three onward, because in book three, and I've just been immersed in it recently editing book three, um, 
all the things that are, all the foundations that are laid in books one and two, um, you start to spring up in book three and you really see why all those foundations were laid. And then book three takes off with the building of the community, which is a lot of what this whole thing is about. Believe me, if you just read books one and two, you'd think, really, we're reading 10 books about this Grant guy and all his feelings and all his childhood? I mean, really, it's like a long diary entry, right? Yeah. No, it's not a long diary entry. Um, it, it, I almost thought about releasing book three as the first one and then coming back and doing one and two. Ah, uh, you're going to play one. Star Wars on us, huh? Yeah, a little bit, prequel and all that kind of stuff. But it ended up, for a variety of reasons, making more sense to start off chronologically. So if you liked one and two, you're going to love three onward. Okay, folks, and remember, you can win one of 20 autograph sets by both myself and Glenn. Uh, they will be the, the only 20 sets done this way. Uh, all you got to do is buy a set of the books yourself because you're going to want these collectible ones all put away and nice because they, who knows, they might be worth something someday, especially after the collapse <laughs> and <laughs> building, right? And, and hopefully we get book 12 out before the whole thing falls apart. Um, but anyway, uh, just email uh, a copy of your receipts uh, from your purchase to uh, glentate1n and then glentate, the numbers 123 at gmail.com. I'll put full, you know, how to do that to make sure if there's any question, the email address and all in today's show notes. And uh, we'll run that contest, I guess, 30 days. We'll run it to what? Halloween, October 31st, right? End of sure. October. And that'll be right before the, uh, the, the three and four come out. And then, uh, Glenn will do some kind of random number generator and pick 20 people out of all the people that do that. And, uh, you'll get something that, well, I don't think even I'll have. Uh, I don't know if you want a book autographed by yourself. Uh, so, uh, so, so, well, that'll be really, really cool. And I, I really thank you and your, your publisher, uh, for making the books available to do that with. Yeah, you bet. It's it's an absolute honor. Absolute honor. Never thought this would happen. If you would have told me a couple of years ago I'd be talking to Jack Spirko about jointly autographing a book, I would have said you're out of your mind. But I'm so glad it's come true. Well, and uh, I have to tell you, it, it was uh, it was kind of really cool to be reading the book, and then all of a sudden you, I start reading this guy on the podcast named Jack Spirko was saying, and seeing yourself written into a book that way is really kind of neat too. So I do appreciate the uh, the mentions that you gave me uh, at a few points. Uh, in the book. Thank you very much for that as well. Oh, my pleasure. It's it's a reality-based book, and you and the forum are a big part of why I prep and why I prep the right way. And it's part of the story, and I'm just telling the story. Awesome, awesome. Well, folks, again, the uh, the book series, 299 Days. Uh, go out and get yourself a set. And make sure you email Glenn. If you already bought a set, just find your receipt in your email archives or what have you, uh, because you don't have to buy one today to, to, to be part of the contest. You got to the end of the month, and uh, we'll pick a winner. And uh, when your next uh, release comes, uh, we'll have you back on to talk about that. And, uh, again, I appreciate you being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Jack. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Glenn Tate, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this 
Show you.